shackled by a heavy burden Neath the load of guilt and shame Then the hand of Jesus touched me And now I am no longer the same He touched me Oh, He touched me And oh, the joy that floods my soul Something happened And now I know He touched me And made me I met this blessed Savior Since He cleansed and made me whole I will never cease to praise Him I'll shout it while eternity rolls He touched me Oh, He touched me, He touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know He touched me and made me whole. He touched me. Oh, He touched me, He touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know He touched me and made me. sure how that was going to turn out after yesterday on that bus on the way home, huh? I mean to tell you, for four or more hours straight, it was just all out insanity. Wasn't it, guys? Great. It was wonderful. Boy, I enjoyed it. I had a good time. At one point, we had one of these young people literally soar through the air across the seats. I mean, I couldn't even, this, like planking. It was amazing, and uh, finally the, the rule had to be established, no planking on the seats as we were playing this particular game, but it was just crazy, I mean, crazy stuff going on, I mean, just singing the whole way home, I mean, just, I mean, singing loud, I mean, it was good, our voices were all being lost, we were scratchy throat and all, and the young people, of course, went down there for contests, so they had uh, sang things, they had worked on projects, they had all kinds of stories that they had written, and different um, art types of things, pictures, and uh, websites and brochures and things that they've created for this contest and boy we turned out did a great job I'm so proud of them and again had a good spirit good attitude while they were there and nobody got all bent out of shape about losing if they didn't get a trophy or something everybody had a good spirit and boy they're just glad to be able to serve the Lord you know and so I was excited for that and boy what a great time it was it was really a good time 
Well, anyway, you'd be praying for our young people. They need us, and uh, they need uh, the Lord Jesus Christ as well. Appreciate your support for them. Makes a big difference, and uh, can't be done without everyone pulling together and getting it done. Well, let's go ahead and take our Bibles, turn over the book of 2 Peter chapter 1 today. 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 1. It's in the New Testament, quite a ways off there, all the way toward the end. Second Peter chapter 1. Again, we're still in our series, uh, for our, our yearly series, I should say, for uh, the, um, lo- not the logo, <laughs> my mind's going blank here all of a sudden, I felt like I was going to take a nap right there, <laughs> I, I really did, I, I'm not joking, man. My, I started to even close a little bit, I was like, okay, where am I at again, Lord, give me some uh, perspective here, you know. Uh, but anyway, we got back really late last night. It was a long night. Let me tell you that right now. <clears throat> but nonetheless, uh, it just, you know, we got started late. And boy, I'll tell you what, just kind of, I don't know what it is. That, that, that trip just seems longer at night when it's uh, late than it does during the day even. But <clears throat> nonetheless, it turned out great. Second um, Peter chapter 1. I'll tell you what, let's not worry about anything. Let's just get started. I'll tell you a little bit about the theme later. <laughs> Verse 1. <clears throat> Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind, cannot see afar off, and have forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, ye shall never fall. Now again, we've been involved in this particular series for some time, and some of it may seem somewhat redundant, but I think sometimes it's helpful, for me at least, to review in my own mind and kind of bring it all together a little bit. I mean, in this particular case, once again, we see the passage and it's dealing with the Apostle Peter speaking to a church and he's talking to the people there and he recognizes that many of those believers, as we said, had started off so very strongly. They'd started off right. They were headed in the right direction in their Christian lives, but all of a sudden they had been sidetracked by the immoral culture around them. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Well, I'll tell you what, we live in such an immoral age in a difficult time in a a very decadent culture, and we too can be very susceptible to this. So what we're seeing written to these people by the Apostle Peter is something that you and I can certainly glean from and ultimately grow from. Now, again, their profession of faith and righteousness were being overshadowed by their immorality and their worldliness. And so the prospect of persecution, even the very aspect of persecution where they're bodily being persecuted, was not so much the threat as the moral decline. It wasn't the outward pressure, but the inward that was concerning the Apostle Peter. It wasn't what was happening in the world to hurt or to harm the church. It was what was taking place on the inside of the church and the the fact that hearts were being destroyed and misdirected instead of 
being built up in Jesus Christ. And so he says, we're going to have to do something about this. He goes on to say, listen, I know that you've been saved. I recognize the fact that you began on a firm foundation, the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's imperative and it is important that we understand it's not enough to simply be saved. You have to add to your faith. And so he begins to go through a series or a list of of qualities, characteristics. We could even call them virtues. And he, he begins to let us know some of the things that must be added to our faith if we're going to endure these difficult times, if we're going to face them successfully, if we're going to navigate through the Christian life and ultimately end up in heaven hearing, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so he starts off by saying you need to add to your faith virtue. And as we said, virtue, it has to do with the pursuit of Christ-likeness, that moral excellence. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and says, now to that virtue, you need to add some knowledge. The fact is, is that you need to know about a person. It's not just general knowledge, but specific knowledge. You need to understand and know about the person, the work, and the ways of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We said that we can never hope to be like Him if we don't know anything about Him. And so we're to add to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance. We noted that that temperance simply means self-control. And that self-control demands self-denial. It means being able to say no to oneself. And that self-denial, it, it, it breeds a, a sense of orderliness which imitates the nature of God Himself. It's the essence. Um, it's essential that we add that temperance to our faith because if we don't, We'll be ruled by our passions instead of the Spirit of God. And so to that temperance, we need to add patience, he says. He continues to add to this mathematical problem, continues to grow. And he says, we need to add patience. And what we're talking about is the aspect of endurance, the ability to remain faithful under any given circumstance, to be faithful to God under any given pressure while enduring them in a way that is Christ-honoring, glorifying to God. See, when we know God to be a certain kind of person, when we realize that God is a person who will keep His word, who has a plan and is working that plan, then when we're convinced of the very presence and the providence and the power of this God that we love and we serve, then there's no obstacle that we face that we cannot overcome recognizing and understanding that God Himself has a purpose in it and will fulfill that purpose in our life. Even if it's uncomfortable at the time, He has a plan and a purpose. And therefore, we can be patient and enduring in the midst of those trials and tribulations that affect us on the outside. Not only that, He goes on to talk about the fact that we need to add to patience godliness. And we noted that godliness in the New Testament basically was the equivalent of the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament. When they spoke about the fear of the Lord in the Old Testament, it, it, it was something that now kind of translates now to this godliness spoken of in the New Testament. So we define godliness. And we said that godliness could be defined as a God-fearing lifestyle that promotes righteousness and opposes evil. So we said that godliness demands devotion. And we noted how the prior virtues kind of fill in here. 
that devotion we could talk about would be that virtue, first of all, that, that Christ-likeness and the desire for moral excellence. And then we take the aspect of the knowledge of God. And as we, we can't get knowledge of God until we're on our knees and in the presence of God and in the Word of God. And so this devotion becomes a major aspect of d- establishing and ultimately creating godliness in our life and enabling us to live a godly life. So we see that devotion. But we said not only devotion, but we're going to need some discipline if we're going to be godly and live a godly life. And discipline obviously has to do with that aspect of temperance and patience that we just talked about, that self-control and the ability to understand who God is and what He's all about and that He has a purpose and a plan and that we can trust Him with our life. And so now we have this aspect of devotion and discipline and we said that those two things come together and they create this aspect of courage. Courage, and that is a, an aspect that is visible in godliness. Godliness and courage go hand in hand, and that courage enables us, that godliness enables us to stand in the midst of the storms of life, to be able to stand in the midst of corruption in the world. The ability to say, I'm going to live for God, I'm going to stand for God, I'm not just going to do right, I'm, going to, I'm not just going to be right, I'm going to do right. I'm not going to allow the world to have victory. Just like David said to Goliath, listen, I come to you in the name of the Lord God, Jehovah. I'm not coming in my own name. I'm not going to allow you to blaspheme my God. I'm not going to allow you to put down my faith. I'm going to stand for what I believe and I'm going to do what needs to be done. Boy, we need to have people today that are godly people that are willing to stand up for Jesus Christ. They're willing to take their place and oppose evil. Oppose evil in their own life. Oppose evil in their own marriages. Oppose evil in their own homes. And oppose evil in their own churches. And oppose evil in their own world. Listen, evil will abound if we allow it. It'll take over. But God says we must stand. And that's an aspect of godliness. A willingness to be courageous in the face of danger even. And no matter what the cost, to stand for Jesus Christ. And then to that godliness, we're to add brotherly kindness. Well, what temperance, what, what balance, I should say, is needed here. And again, sometimes we get a little out of balance, don't we? If we're not careful, we say, well, I've got to stand for God. I've got to take a stand. I've got to plant my feet firm, and I'm not moving. And that's fine, and you need to take a stand for Jesus Christ. But as we noted, there's an aspect of this brotherly kindness that steps into play, too. And we have to understand that there are people all around us that are hurting, especially the faith and the family of God. And this brotherly kindness points to a feeling of affection toward and a willingness to share with those who are members of the family, the church family, those who share something in common. We noted that the world is about this multiculturalism, about trying to somehow cause us to accept and tolerate the differences of people. But in reality, God's word goes at it from a different perspective. God says we're going to focus on what we have in common. And in those commonalities, we're going to go ahead and lift one another up and rejoice with one another. We have so many things in common. We're the children of God. We're born again. We're on our way to heaven. We have the Spirit of God living in us. We're all part of one family. We all believe the same faith. We all serve the same God. And we look and we say, oh, praise God. We can come together and say, listen, we're so much alike in so many ways. I can put up with your weird ways and I can deal with your idiosyncrasies because there's just that much in common and we're going to focus on what we have in common not our differences brotherly kindness and then he finally says now we come to our final attribute come to the end of this list and he points out that we need to add once again 
And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, he says, Beside this giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. Charity. He tells us to add charity. Now, at this point we come to our final characteristic now. We've ended up at the end of the list, if you will, the end of the road. Everything's been moving to this place, to this end. And while love is common to all believers, and the Bible says that we are rooted and grounded in love, according to Ephesians 3.17. Every believer is rooted and grounded in love. We understand that commonality. However, that love is not necessarily fully developed as God would like it to be in our lives. And you know what? As a matter of fact, we cannot possibly develop that kind of love that's being spoken of here without the support of all those other virtues we just discussed and talked about. Again, they build upon one another. They're not independent of one another. And now we finally come to the full culmination of this list and we arrive at the end result, what God wants us to have and what God wants us to demonstrate and how God wants us to live our life and that's in charity. One would say love. A word for love, charity. See, love cannot endure all things without patience. It cannot hope all things and believe all things without knowledge. Love cannot be kind and Love cannot suffer long without some self-control. The former virtues have to be developed if true godliness, true love is to be expressed by the believer. So today we want to talk about that love. We talked about the fact that last week we said that this brotherly kindness has to do with our affection toward each other within the context of the local church and the body of Christ the inward, the, this group. But when we get talking about love, what we're going to realize is this charity that he speaks of here has to do with loving those outside the walls of this place, even those that one might even view as an enemy. And so today, let's consider this love. Father, we come to you. We do ask for your leadership today. May you, Father, speak through me and to me. I have nothing to offer this people except you give it to me. Oh, God of heaven, thank you for this wonderful passage and for the opportunity that we have had through these weeks, Father, to dissect it and to ultimately describe it and then, Father, to display it in our lives. Help us, Lord, we pray, to continue to do so. Now, Father, bless us this morning, and if there be any here that has not experienced the full love of Christ by receiving that love that he shared, shared on Calvary, by truly receiving and accepting Him as their Lord and Savior and allowing their sin to be washed away and their life to be transformed and changed by the wonderful blood of Christ and the sacrifice that He made for us. May they truly experience that love firsthand today by trusting and receiving You as Lord and Savior. Well, thank You now, Lord, as You bless us as believers and help us to grow in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So love defined. <clears throat> How would we define this word love, this charity that's spoken of here in Second Peter chapter 1, well, the word is the word agape. And again, uh, let's face it, there's been a lot written, there's been a lot said, much preached about the different words of love throughout. But we're talking about this word specifically, agape. See, 
<clears throat> this particular word generally speaks or is distinguished from all the other Greek words by its deliberateness, by its focus. Agape love is not used in the New Testament to refer to romantic love. It's not used uh, to refer to close friendships or even brotherly love. That, that's not the word, and that's not how it's being used. Agape is used to describe the love that is of and from God, whose very nature is love itself. See, the Bible says that God is love. In 1 John 4, 8, the Bible says, He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. See, God does not merely love. He is love itself. And that's something we have to understand. You don't, you don't talk about God independent of His love because He is love. There is no love outside Him. He is love. And for the believer, that is so important. Everything God does flows from His love. Everything He does. Everything is fueled by His love and who and what He really is. See, agape is used to describe the kind of intentional and wholehearted love that we're to, have, we're to have for God Himself. See, we're to love God too, the Bible says, and that's the same term. We're to love Him like He loves us. In Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 38, it's that Jesus said unto them, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. One writer described it this way as he said, and uh, he said it this way, quote, Agape has to do with the mind. It is not simply an emotion which rises in our hearts. It is a principle by which we deliberately live. <clears throat> Agape has supremely to do with the will. It is a conquest, a victory, and achievement. No one ever naturally loved his enemies. To love one's enemies is a quest for all of our nat uh, natural feelings and emotions. Excuse me. To love one's enemy is a conquest of all our natural feelings and emotions. He goes on to say, <clears throat> can somebody turn on something? It's getting extremely warm, at least where I'm at. I know maybe where you're at, it's perfectly fine now, but with all this hot air up here, it will warm up in this place. <clears throat> Just leave it at 70, that'll be fine. That'd be good. Turn that one on too, that way we get it even, guys. In the sound booth, even, guys. 70, please. Thank you. That'd be great. All right. <clears throat> Uh, brother, could you wake them up from time to time? Make sure they're still awake. Right. Okay, very good. Okay, this agape, then, he goes on to say this. He says, this agape, this Christian love, is not merely an emotional experience which comes to us unbidden and unsought. It is, in fact, the power to love the unlovable, to love people who we do not like. Christianity does not have to ask us to love our enemies and to love men at large in the same way as we love our nearest and our dearest and those who are closest to us. That would be uh, one in the, uh, excuse me, he says, that would be one and the same time impossible and wrong. But it does demand that we have at all times a certain attitude of the mind and a certain direction of the will towards all men as they are. Again, he's deal we're dealing with the, the aspect of loving those outside our common circle. See, it's easy to love people that feel the way you feel and think the way you think and act the way you act and look the way you look, but it gets a little bit more difficult when we step outside of that realm. And the Bible's teaching us to love the way God loves. And then on the other hand, we're to love God the way He loves us. Now, how would we define then this love? This love that ultimately finalizes this list of attributes that we've now spoken of over the weeks. Well, we could 
define it like this. Cultivating a God-imitating mindset that scripturally and sacrificially advances the spiritual uh, welfare of others. So let me say that again. Cultivating a God-imitating mindset. We're going to love like God loves. We're going to cultivate a God-imitating mindset that scripturally and sacrificially advances the spiritual welfare of others. That's what we're dealing with here. That's the love we're talking about here at the end of our list. So we'll clarify that maybe a little more as we move along, as we consider an example. But let's consider now not the definition, but let's consider the, the, the demonstration of this. When God killed an animal early on in Genesis, and he used that skin of that animal to cover Adam and Eve who had sinned against him, when he made the promise that one day the woman's seed would ultimately crush the serpent's head, what was really going on? I mean, when those animal sacrifices were offered daily upon the altar in the tabernacle and ultimately offered in the temple, what was really going on? When a baby boy was born to a virgin by the name of Mary, born in a stable in Bethlehem, what was really going on? When a young Jewish teacher, a young man, Jesus of Nazareth, walked on water, raised the dead, healed the lame, cleansed the lepers, fed the thousands with just a couple loaves and fishes. What was going on? What was really going on? I mean, when the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to that Samaritan woman there, even though there were racial divisions between the Samaritan and the Jew at the time, and there He spoke to that woman, and He shared with her a life, and sought to win her and to help her, to cleanse her and to make her whole again. What was really going on? When Jesus was bound by the Roman officials and ultimately accused of blasphemy by the Jewish religious leaders. When Christ was tried by Pilate and executed on a Roman cross outside of the city. What was really going on? Well, the answer is that the love of God was on a mission. That mission was to redeem and restore fallen man. See, the love of Christ culminates with the redemption of humanity. Jesus didn't heal and Jesus didn't just simply feed people because there were just so many beggars and hungry people on earth. It's not why He did all those things. I mean, it's not to say that He wasn't concerned about the needs of people. It wasn't saying that He didn't have a broken heart for hurting people. No, the Bible says that He was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He understood exactly what we're feeling. He had compassion on humanity and their needs and their hurts. But He could have sent the angels to feed the hungry. To heal and to help. Jesus performed every miracle to testify of His deity. He performed every miracle to prove Himself as that long-awaited Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come one day and not only redeem fallen man, but ultimately take His rightful place on the throne of David and rule and reign. His mission of love was to meet the spiritual need of every one of us that are fallen in our sin, that are a direct result of the atomic nature 
who have no hope outside of Jesus Christ himself. He came to restore us back into fellowship with God the Father so that we could honor and glorify the God who created us and fulfill our God-given purpose for existing. So what's going on is that the God of heaven is on a mission of love to redeem and restore His fallen creation to the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to, to the praise of His glory. That's why He came. That's what's going on. That's why everything took place the way it did, ultimately. I understand there are other aspects of His purpose. I realize that ultimately the great pinnacle of His coming will be when He returns and He's established as his, in His rightful place as King. But boy, I'll tell you what, when He came, He demonstrated great love. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Everything, everything that is done is done out of love. And everything is done out of love for you and I who hated Him, who despised Him, who ultimately placed Him on a cross called Calvary, who put plucked His beard out and whipped Him with a cat of nine tails and ultimately said, We don't want you. We want nothing to do with you, Son of God. And yet He loved us anyway. Amen. He loved us anyway. <clears throat> so we note the definition we consider here for just a moment, the demonstration, but now consider the duty. When we attempt to live up to the standard of sacrificial and intentional love, the same kind of love that the Lord Jesus Christ demonstrated, when we try to treat others in the same light as He has treated us, we can't help but see how much we need to cultivate those previous six attributes. How we have to go back to the beginning again and say, I must build upon this faith. I must add to this faith foundation because I am miserably inept to accomplish this calling. To enable me to do this work, I am unable. I can't get it done. I'm not able to love like God loves. I've got to go back and begin to, once again, add to my faith. Because when we keep this mission in mind, that every time we love, every time we do as God has commanded us, that it is always a result of trying to see someone be bettered for Him or to be saved by Him. We recognize now there's a purpose for why He tells us to do what we do. When you look in this book and you wonder why God tells you that you're to forgive, when we look in this book and we recognize the fact that we're to live a sanctified, separated, holy life unto Jesus Christ, when we realize we're to be faithful in God's house and we're to continue to go out and reaching out through soul winning, knocking doors, and trying to win others to Jesus Christ, when we see all of the things that God expects and intends of us and demands of us, we realize that none of them matter and they don't make any sense to us. If there's not a tremendous, a divine purpose, and that divine purpose is to love the way God did for one purpose, and that's to redeem fallen man. So in the end, every believer's purpose and role and goal is to not only glorify God, that's good. You can't glorify God, though, if you're not loving the way He loved. And He came to love with a specific purpose in mind, to redeem fallen man. And if we're not reaching out and winning converts to Jesus Christ and ultimately discipling those converts to the glory of God, then we are failing in love.
the duty. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We are called to love as Christ loved, to give ourselves wholeheartedly and sacrificially to others, even as He did, to strive to reach and redeem the fallen and advance the spiritual welfare of others. That's what we're here to do. Amen. And that's the culmination of this list. It ultimately ends there. Why in the world does He want us to be Christ-like? And why does He want us to add to that aspect of our life with knowledge and why add, you know, why add um, temperance to knowledge? And why add patience to temperance? And why do we add these things? What is this goal? What's his reasoning? Why spend all this time striving to become this man or woman of God as described in the Word of God? Because the ultimate culmination of all of it is to love like he loved and to ultimately reach and affect others the way he did. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what a powerful chapter this is. We've often referred to this, uh, at least many have referred to this as the love chapter in the Bible. It, it, it truly is a definitive chapter on love itself. And again, the word charity is used, but the word is uh, certainly uh, means love. But again, it's not just loving as a feeling, as we're going to note here. Note what the Apostle Paul says. <clears throat> Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all ministry, mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. <clears throat> We're going to move on in just a moment. But notice once again in those four verses, just those simple. He says, Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself. It is not puffed up. In this passage, Paul's telling us that <clears throat> if we don't keep in mind this mission of Calvary, all the love, the deeds of sacrifice, the benevolence that we share with others is useless in the kingdom of God. See, again, it's not just what we do that matters. It's the spirit in which we do it. Yes, amen. He says that gift of elegance... It's like noisy, a noisy gong. Remember the gong show? Boing! They'd grab that little hook and pull you right off the stage. Some of you are older remember that show. I don't. Somebody told me about it. <laughs> Maybe I do remember it. But nonetheless, he says the gifts of prophecy and knowledge and the gift of faith, he says, they amount to nothing without this love. Even the most sacrificial deeds, he says, are unprofitable. Without keeping the mission-minded, that mission-minded aspect of the love of Calvary, the fact that the love of God is what we need to demonstrate in our life. We need to love people that are unlovable. We even need to love people that don't love us. Because if we're doing anything without that love moving us and motivating us and, and preempting it, 
then it's useless. It's a gong. It's unprofitable. It's useless. So God's love is on a mission. And that mission is to redeem. That mission is to restore fallen man into the likeness of His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's what gives us significance in everything we do. That's what makes it, that's what makes it matter. Is that everything that you do, when you come to church every Sunday morning, you do it out of the love that you have for God, and you also do it as a love for others because you understand that your faithfulness affects others for God's glory. When you abstain from sin in your life, you're not, it's not just bothersome to us. We recognize that we do this because of our great love for God who so greatly loved us. And as a result, we want to love mankind and see them restored. And I can't possibly be a blessing to others if I myself am steeped in sin. All motivated by this love of Calvary. This desire to see fallen man restored. Everything we do in life, our marriages, our families... Our work, our leisure ought to be moved and motivated by the love of God. And that love ought to cause us to look at others with great compassion and realize that if I don't fulfill my role and responsibility, if I don't act the way I ought to act and live the way I ought to live, then I'm not going to see others come to Christ. If anything, I may be a deterrent to that. And this charity is what should move us, even as it moved Jesus Christ Himself to take His place on Calvary, on our behalf. So again, the destination. Where does this all end? Well, first of all, a love for souls. This agape love, this love that is ultimately added to us, we, we have to understand that it should move us. All of those attributes ultimately end up at this place of charity. Of love. It's amazing how Jesus could hang on a cross being tortured in agony. And say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How could he do that? It certainly was an unnatural love. It was a godly love. He himself is love. And that is the same love that he has given to us. But it must be cultivated in our life. A love for souls. A desire to not only win them, but disciple them. How much do you love your neighbor? How much do you love your family member? Don't we, we cannot forget that the very thing that provides us with joy in our life, satisfaction and fulfillment, those things are all a direct result of our relationship and our walk with God. God provides those to us out of His great love and mercy. We, owe, we deserve nothing. God doesn't look from heaven one day and look down and go, boy, look at those wonderful people down there. Look at how, how wonderful. They're so amazing. I think I'll go down and, and, and die on a cross for them because they're all that. They're so wonderful. God didn't do that. He had no reason at all to come here for us. We've done nothing but disappoint Him. We've done nothing but sin against Him. We've done nothing but crucify Him ultimately because of our sin. And yet He loved us. And then He turns around and not only loves us to save us, but then He supplies us with the, the indwelling of His Spirit. 
and He empowers us and enables us to experience the joy of the Lord and to have this wonderful ability to be satisfied and fulfilled in the Christian life. And boy, I'll tell you what, how horrible is it to think that we have this in our hearts, but we are unwilling to share it with others. See, discipleship is just about sharing what you have with others, giving them the opportunity to experience the same joy and the same purpose and the same fulfillment that you experience. That's love in action. It's about being disciples and about making disciples. It's about loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. Just like the Lord, we must purposefully, on purpose, set our affection on others to meet their spiritual needs. There's nothing wrong with providing food for someone. There's nothing wrong with buying a pair of shoes or meeting a need in their life. I understand that, a physical need. But why do you do it? Everything you do, it's not to meet the physical need. Everything we do ought to be done with this agape love in mind, the same love that, that drew Christ from heaven and the comforts of heaven to an old rugged cross to suffer and die on our behalf that caused Him to heal and to help fallen man. That same love, the love to see them redeemed, the love to see them made whole again in Christ, to be brought back into fellowship with God. That's why we do it. We take groceries to a neighbor that's hurting for the express purpose of reaching them for God, to somehow restore them into fellowship with the Lord if they're lost without Christ. We don't just do it to feed them. We do it to feed their spirit. And so many times... We think, well, I'm just going to do a good deed. I'm going to do somebody a good turn. I'm going to be benevolent and be kind and be nice. Why would you be all those things? Why demonstrate brotherly kindness? Why be godly in your life? Because you ought to have the same purpose and the same motivation that God did, and that's love for humanity and their need to be restored back into fellowship with God, to be redeemed from their fallen state and to be saved. Well, it's time that we as believers cultivate this kind of love in our life. That not just feels, but more importantly, acts. That on purpose we love. With a purpose. It's easy to love our family, sometimes. (laughs) Well, love always, but like, that's another story, right? You know, we've got to learn to love others, too. It's a tall order God gives us. And that's why we must add to our faith so many things. Because it is not natural to love your enemy. It's not natural to love those that oppose you, that stand in opposition to you. That's unnatural. But that is what is required, because they are the very ones that He came to save. And therefore, we are to give our life to reaching them. We cannot effectively do so unless we add to our faith charity. Charity.
how you doing in that area? That's a tough one, isn't it? That's a tough one. But get close to the Lord Jesus Christ. Observe and experience His divine character. Spend time in His Word and get to know His character. And that character will rub off on us. May God help us. I wonder today, if you died, I mean today, and God forbid that would happen, but if you did, do you know for sure, without a doubt, you'd be in heaven one day? The God of heaven loved us so much. And He loved us because He is love. He loved us because, no other reason. But the God of heaven came to this earth and literally took your place on that cross. See, you and I deserve that because we're the sinner. And the wages of sin is death, so we must die for our sin, not just physically but spiritually to be separated from God forever in the lake of fire, the Bible tells us over in Revelation twenty fourteen. But God loved us so much that He sent His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Well, we want to live with God. We want to be with the Lord forever and ever and ever. The only way that happens is by receiving and accepting what Christ did for us on Calvary as payment for our sin. By saying, I allow you to be my substitute, Lord. I allow you to take my place because I personally don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve to live with you or to be with you forever but I do appreciate and I do love what you did for me and I accept that as payment for my sin I'm trusting only you and you alone to get me there because I couldn't get there on my own and the Bible says for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved not might be not could be but shall be shall be today shall be tomorrow Shall be next week, next month, next year, and shall be for eternity. Have you trusted Christ and have you received the Lord as your Savior? Do you have it settled in your heart? Do you know where you'll spend it? As a believer, charity. Have you added that to your arsenal? Can you love the unlovable? Can you love those that don't agree with your politics and your morality and your position on the Word of God? Or do you despise them? You can't win them if you despise them. You can't reach them if you despise them. Fortunately, God, although we even put Him on a cross at one point, He still loved us enough to come in our stead. He made a conscious decision to love us. He loved us on purpose with a purpose. And that's what we must learn to do. That's what this is talking about. Believer, how are you doing on that? Do you love on purpose, with a purpose? The purpose being to reach fallen man. Every fallen man and woman. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, you'd bless us today in this simple time of invitation. Be with those that do not know for sure heaven's their home. I pray that you'd convict them of sin and help them to see their great need of Christ. Lord, may they be willing to come even in a few moments as the music plays and take their place at front and see me at the front and say, Preacher, I'm here because I want to know how to be saved. I, I don't have it settled in my life. I want to get Christ in my life. I want to be, have it settled in my heart.